0: Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode
1: 32 I see dead people.
0: I have no idea if you could hear the title or not, but you can check on the blog to see what I said. Oh my goodness. Well, I hope everyone had a better Thanksgiving than I did. I, oh, thank you. um, Thank you for your supportive emails. I got some really nice, yeah, family stuff uh, emails over the last two weeks. Um, My sister and I, my sister's uh, eight years younger than me. And, uh, she, I don't even know how to go about thanking her. She performed yeoman service when, um, when we drove to California because Monday night, my, my mom had to, um, fly out to California to help her mother and her younger sister in a hurry. And, um, that left uh, my sister and I alone with the boys, <laughs> and we were going to have to drive them to California all by our lonesome. and that uh, that was gonna get ugly. So now I'm continuing my narrative uh, four and a half hours later because literally, as I said, the boys, my younger son woke up from his nap an hour early, so, it's been one of those afternoons. Anyway, we, we had to drive to California all the while thinking, well, this is okay. This particular version of misery, this is okay because on the way back, mom will be here. And mom is, we just have the most fabulous mom. She she is good with kids in a way that I only dream of being good with kids. It has been so wonderful for my boys to be here around her because she's so mild and so even and so completely unlike me (laughs) so you know we we made it through the first trip honestly because we thought my mom was going to be there for the second one and then the um the morning that we were scheduled to go saturday morning we left we went out wednesday and we were coming back on saturday Saturday morning, uh, my sister calls my mom and says, okay, we're packed up. We're we're getting our coffee. We're on our way. And my mom said, oh, bad news, blah, blah, blah. Sydney gets back in the car with me and says, okay, so Papa, my grandfather, fell out of bed at 4 o'clock this morning, and that woke everybody up, and my grandmother's freaking out, and my aunt is freaking out because she can't take care of both of them. And they need to get a home health aid in 24-7 and blah, blah, blah. What it comes down to is I am directly related to the most stubborn people on the planet. My grandparents should have gone into some kind of retirement community, like a, not an assisted living community, but a transitional community, like 10 years ago. But they're really stubborn. And I'm sure there are those of you out there who have lived through the same drama and all I can say is, <laughs> there are so many things I could say, but none of them are nice to say out loud. And if you can't say something nice, you really probably should come over and have a beer with me and we'll talk about it. Isn't that a Dorothy Parker thing? If you can't say something nice, sit over here and talk to me. I think that was Dorothy Parker. I'm channeling her right now. I love that. So I, I, re- I am recovering I can't say I have recovered. I am recovering from the trip. And um, the good news is my boys got to spend time with their cousin Troy. And he's 13. And my older son is six and a half. And my younger son is almost three. 13-year-old boys are not well known for being gentle and sweet and kind with uh, younger boys necessarily. Troy was. He was spectacular. Really, really lovely. It was so nice to get to see them to play, you know, see them playing. But the really cool part and the part that broke my heart is um, my son and Troy, actually both my sons and Troy were out in the backyard uh, making and flying paper airplanes. And my grandfather saw them. And he went out and played with them. And to communicate just how heartbreaking that moment was, when I was a child, my grandfather was a perpetual motion machine. He never stopped moving. And and he's he's a, a genius. I think I mentioned this before. He's like MacGyver, you know, give him spit and string and a roll a masking tape and he'll build you a car. Well, he fell in nineteen ninety two. Climbing down from his roof, he broke his heel. He slipped on the last second of the last rung on the ladder, landed on the first rung, and broke his heel. And for reasons that are unclear to me, nobody ever got him physical therapy. At the same time, they found out he had macular degeneration. I think I already said all of this. Anyway, the man used to be a powerhouse, and um, spunky, actually, is a really good way to describe him. He just never stopped moving until he got his heel broken and got macular degeneration and now he rarely moves at all. But we had a couple of really nice moments with him. One was when he played um, with the paper airplanes and the boys. And the other one was when on uh, Friday night after Thanksgiving, he wandered into the kitchen while my mom and sister were cooking. And he said, um, is there anything I can do to help? And my mom said, would you like to cook something? And he paused for a moment and then he said, would you like to die? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's that's my grandfather, that's who I remember, and so that was that was really fun. So I have a few things to share with you before we um, head off into uh, the world of seeing dead people. Um, one of the things is uh, I put a link to Stephanie's blog. Her her on is Lumi. She has some really gorgeous work that you should go look at, and so I just I just put a link up there because. You really should go look at her stuff. And, um, and thank you, Stephanie, for sharing with me because, because I'm in awe. Um, the other thing that I found was I started kind of trolling for podcasts. Not that I need anything more to do with my time, but there was um, a, a friend of mine named um, Peter Sagal. He is the host of a show that you may or may not have heard on National Public Radio called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Peter and my husband and another friend are, they were all playwrights together in New York. Peter was on Broadway and their friend, John Tolins was also on Broadway. And my husband has been on off, off Broadway, but um, they used to have this little, you know, it was like a coffee clutch of these three playwright guys. And Peter at that time was a contestant on, wait, wait, don't tell me. He was one of the weekly funny people. Well, they canned the original host and Peter took over. And since then, the show has just gone skyrocketing to fame. It's it's really quite a funny show. And, um, and Peter's a friend of ours. So I found that they had a podcast. And I signed up for a subscription on iTunes. And that led me to the... You know how they have a little window on iTunes that says, if you liked this podcast, you should also listen to. And I saw some other stuff. So I was doing click-throughs, just kind of trolling around. And I found podcast on philosophy a philosophy podcast and they're doing stuff like David Hume and Aristotle and Machiavelli and Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau and I thought oh my gosh for all of us who were always interested but never kind of got over the hump and you know went and took a philosophy class uh this is our chance. So I've got a link to the main website for um for the people who are putting out this podcast. It's called learnoutloud.com. And if you go, you'll see little tabbies, little blue tabbies at the top, and there's one called Free Stuff. Click on that and you'll find all sorts of stuff. They I'm I'm really impressed. It says, Learn Out Loud is your one stop destination for audio and video learning. Browse 10,000 educational audiobooks, MP3 downloads, podcasts, and videos. I don't know how these people make their money, but I love it. So there's Peter's podcast, there's the new philosophy podcast, and then there's this goofy thing my sister sent me. There's a SantaCon, like a Santa conference. And it was (laughs) the picture, the picture is worth a thousand words. Just click through and smile and move on. But then um, I think I've mentioned that we've been going to all these doctor's appointments to try and help um, figure out what, uh, what's going on with my son, my older son. And uh, at one of the doctors, she told me that there was a website, an environmental EPA something linked website where we could go and get a shopper's guide to pesticides in produce. Because evidently there are like 10 or 12 pieces of produce that you should simply never buy unless you can buy organic and then there are I think like 10 or 12 other pieces of produce that you can always buy regular because whatever pesticides they're using they don't infiltrate the skin and the part of the the food that you eat is protected. So she she gave me a link I followed the link and I found this place called the environmental working group they say the power of information and it's got You know, some of it's just really good lefty stuff, but they have this data on pesticides and produce. And it's a little shopper's guide that you can print out and take with you. And obviously, you know, you use it twice and you'll have memorized the whole thing. But I'm so, so impressed with the stuff that they've got. They've got a tuna calculator so that you can know how much is safe for you, how much is safe for your kid. It's just, it's just nice information for moms so you know get in touch with your inner earth mother and um and check out the the little list of organics it's it's really nice and useful um let's see there was another another thing that i wanted to show you oh no that wasn't it i'm looking at my my things oh i've got some goofy um goofy quiz results so you can see what my quiz results were and then you can click on the quiz results and you can take quizzes yourself. And that way um, that way, we can all find out all sorts of ridiculous things about us that really don't matter but are kind of fun. So, <laughs> so that's that. And then there was something else I'd wanted to tell you. Oh no, I have to save that for later. I'm trolling through all of my notes for... Um, for the show notes today so today we are moving on with henry james and if you recall last week our young governess was wandling through the uh gardens at the Bly estate and she was thinking kind of these imaginary you know how girls are we all went there um kind of wandering around thinking about the guy who'd hired her and how cool he is and how perfect he is and like how gorgeous he is and and all of that. And then suddenly she thinks that he's appeared for her in an upstairs window. And then she realizes that it's not him and it's somebody else, somebody much creepier, somebody who has fixed her with this stare and You may have noticed that I am no longer marking the episodes clean because one of the things that we just have to talk about, and I didn't realize it when we started, is we have to talk about sexuality. And if you had young kids listening to Pride and Prejudice, I didn't want anybody to be misguided and think that this would be appropriate for a young kid. I think certainly this is appropriate for older children, um, you know, 17, 18 year olds, but I you don't necessarily want to talk about this with your twelve year old. Um I hear my son calling for me. Hang on. And I'm back. Um, so I, I, yeah, I just didn't want to mislead anybody with the the whole discussion of sexuality, which is about what i'm it's what I'm about to talk about again. Um, there is an interesting thing, obviously going on with the governess right now. She's twenty. she's very young. This is a book that was written in the late 1800s. So, uh, you know, we're in the height of Victorian repression. And there's some interesting sexual subtext going on here. Here she is um, thinking very romantically and uh, I might say rather lamely about the guy who hired her as though he's just going to sweep in to Bly and take her away from all this. And, you know, it's that kind of goopy blah, blah, blah that girls do but then it's almost as if she's confronted by real grown-up male and he looks at her from the window and it is this piercing stare and on some level this this is that moment where she gets it that that sex isn't romance or at least lust isn't romance and that these are two very different things and she's thrown off. And she doesn't she doesn't quite understand what's going on. And as the next chapters that we're going to listen to pick up today, you are going to hear an allusion to Jane Eyre that Henry James snuck in at the beginning of our first chapter. There's a comment about insane relatives in the attic. but there's there's more to it than that. There I mean, he's obviously doing this on purpose. But if you remember, Jane Eyre, who is a governess, Marries her employer. so you've got this it's almost this postmodern moment. it's kind of interesting where Henry James has a fictional character referencing another fictional character to make a very important point um as to the the new character's characterization and I thought that was just brilliant. Uh, boy, talk about multi-layered and interesting very, very cool on Henry's part um. She's also going to start to show more of her, what I call her true colors, about um, Miles and his corruption. And I'd say her true colors are kind of green and snooty. She's, she's um, I've actually met people like this, who instead of taking a good cold look at themselves and going, wow, I really blew that and I need to go back and rethink my position and try and fix that or apologize or something um there are some people who just you know accept the fact that everyone else is wrong and should you know probably apologize to them and i think that's what this girl is like she she makes some decisions about miles and and what really happened at the school and uh, it's a little shocking And it goes hand in hand with the way that she's been uh, finishing sentences for Mrs. Gross. She just, she makes these assumptions about people and what they're about to say or what they're about to do as though she knows something. And she's only 20. And oh, dear God, my son is calling for me again. I can't wait to podcast from my own office. And I'm back again. So... Let's see. Let me look at my notes. Um, The other thing that's going to happen today is we are going to get to see, as per the title of this episode, I See Dead People, um, we are going to get to see dead people again. And listen closely to the order that things happen in. This is what I had been talking about with um, the comparisons to Hawthorne, where you get you get what could be an actual supernatural event. And at the same time, it's really hard to to accept that. And there's this wonderful kind of parallel structure that Henry James sets up. The governess sees Peter Quint again. Miss Gross sees the governess and they both have the same response. The governess is horrified by Peter Mrs. Gross is horrified by the governess, which starts to give you a little clue about whether she's okay or not. You know, in the beginning, it's this romantic thing. These chapters are where we start to take the turn down the, the darker side of all of this. If she, if she is seeing a ghost, then it means one thing. If she is imagining all of this, then she's kind of, you know, fallen off the deep end, kind of like the woman in the yellow wallpaper. And you can imagine that the woman in the yellow wallpaper by the end of the story doesn't look very good. This is one of those moments where you start to get that, that, um, you know, the, the, your visage, your face, the way you look, your eyes are the window into your soul. And if Mrs. Gross is looking into the governess's soul in that moment when she sees her in the window, it's not a real pretty picture. So, so this is, these are the two chapters where we really start to, to get the beginning of the turn and the, the title, the turn of the screw um, has been interpreted a number of ways. The, the way that makes the most sense to me is, um, you know, the medieval torture thumb screws where they, you know, put your thumb in a vise and they would just turn it. I, I, I like to imagine that same kind of thing happening on her head. (laughs) For for anyone who's read uh, Nikos Kazantzakis' book, The Last Temptation of Christ, there is this amazing um, imagery and metaphor for what happens to uh, Jesus when he tries to resist what God wants him to do. And it's this, the image that you've got is that of, and this is going from memory, uh, an eagle and the, the claws, the talons of the eagle are pressing into the sides of his head, making it clear to him that he's probably doing the wrong thing right now and he should perhaps li- listen to God. Um, that that kind of image of this vise on, on a person's head, um, forcing them to either do something or not do something, um, I think is a, a really compelling image. And since this story is called The Turn of the Screw, not the turning of the screw or the screw turned or anything like that, you get the image that you just get a little turn of the screw in every chapter. Oh, and there it turns again. Oh, and we get another little turn. Just pressing and compressing and, and in many ways tormenting the, the girl who is the governess in the story. And um, we hadn't really talked about that before, but I I needed to, so so now I have. So today we get chapters, zero, one, two, three, we get four and five. I'm, I'm completely off balance because the first chapter is zero, it's the prologue. So we did zero and one the first week, we did two and three last week, and now we're gonna do four and five. And, um, and I think that's all we're going to get through today, because um, one of the chapters is a little bit longer than the other. So without any further blathering, and now that you've been set up to, um, to pick up on some interesting stuff that happens today, I give you The Turn of the
2: Screw by Henry James. Chapter Four It was not that I didn't wait, on this occasion, for more. For I was rooted as deeply as I was shaken, was there a secret at lie, a mystery of Udolpho, or an insane, an unmentionable relative kept in unsuspected confinement? I can't say how long I turned it over, or how long, in a confusion of curiosity and dread, I remained where I had had my collision. I only recall that when I re-entered the house, darkness had quite closed in. Agitation in the interval certainly had held me and driven me, for I must, encircling about the place, have walked three miles. But I was to be, later on, so much more overwhelmed, that this mere dawn of alarm was a comparatively human chill. The most singular part of it, in fact, singular as the rest had been, was the part I became, in the hall, aware of in meeting Mrs. Gross. This picture comes back to me in the general train, the impression, as I received it on my return, of the wide, white-panelled space, bright in the lamplight, and with its portraits and red carpet, and of the good surprised look of my friend, which immediately told me she had missed me. It came to me straightway, under her contact, that, with plain heartiness, mere relieved anxiety at my appearance, she knew nothing whatever that could bear upon the incident I had there ready for her. I had not suspected in advance that her comfortable face would pull me up, and I somehow measured the importance of what I had seen by my thus finding myself hesitant to mention it. Scarce anything in the whole history seems to me so odd as this fact, that my real beginning of fear was one, as I may say, with the instinct of sparing my companion, on the spot accordingly, in the pleasant hall, and with her eyes on me, I, for a reason that I couldn't then have phrased, achieved an inward resolution, offered a vague pretext for my lateness, and, with the plea of the beauty of the night, and of the heavy dew and wet feet, went as soon as possible to my room. Here it was another affair, here for many days after. It was a queer affair enough. There were hours from day to day, or at least there were moments, snatched even from my clear duties. When I had to shut myself up to think, it was not so much yet that I was more nervous than I could bear to be as that I was remarkably afraid of becoming so. But the truth I had now to turn over was, simply and clearly, the truth that I could arrive at, no account whatever, of the visitor with whom I had been so inexplicably and yet, as it seemed to me, so intimately concerned. It took little time to see that I could sound without forms of inquiry, and without exciting remark, any domestic complications. The shock I had suffered must have sharpened all my senses. I felt sure, at the end of three days, and as the result of mere closer attention, that I had not been practised upon by the servants, nor made the object of any game. Of whatever it was that I knew, nothing was known around me. There was but one sane inference. Someone had taken a liberty rather gross. That was what, repeatedly, I dipped into my room and locked the door to say to myself. We had been, collectively, subject to an intrusion. Some unscrupulous traveller, curious in old houses, had made his way in unobserved, enjoyed the prospect from the best point of view, and then stolen out as he came. If he had given me such a bold, hard stare, that was but a part of his indiscretion, The good thing, after all, was that we should surely see no more of him. This was not so good a thing, I admit, as not to leave me to judge that what, essentially, made nothing else much, signify was simply my charming work. My charming work was just my life with Miles and Flora, and through nothing could I so like it as through feeling that I could throw myself into it in trouble. The attraction of my small charges was a constant joy, leading me to wonder afresh at the vanity of my original fears, the distaste I had begun by entertaining for the probable grey prose of my office. There was to be no grey prose, it appeared, and no long grind, so how could work not be charming that presented itself as daily beauty? It was all the romance of the nursery and the poetry of the schoolroom. I don't mean by this, of course, that we studied only fiction and verse. I mean I can express no otherwise the sort of interest my companions inspired. How can I describe that except by saying that, instead of growing used to them, and it's a marvel for a governess, I call the sisterhood to witness, I made constant fresh discoveries. There was one direction, assuredly, in which these discoveries stopped. Deep obscurity continued to cover the region of the boy's conduct at school. It had been promptly given me, I have noted, to face that mystery without a pang. Perhaps even it would be nearer the truth to say that, without a word, He himself had cleared it up. He had made the whole charge absurd. My conclusion bloomed there with the real rose flush of his innocence. He was only too fine and fair for the little, horrid, unclean school world, and he had paid a price for it. I reflected acutely that the sense of such differences, such superiorities of quality, always on the part of the majority, which could include even stupid, sordid headmasters, turn infallibly to the vindictive. Both the children had a gentleness. It was their only fault, and it never made Miles a muff. That kept them, how shall I express it, almost impersonal and certainly quite unpunishable. They were like the cherubs of the anecdote, who had morally, at any rate, nothing to whack. I remember feeling with Miles in a special, as if he had had, as it were, no history. We expect of a small child a scant one, but there was in this beautiful little boy something extraordinarily sensitive, yet extraordinarily happy, that more than in any creature of his age I have seen, struck me as beginning anew each day. He had never for a second suffered. I took this as a direct disproof of his having really been chastised. If he had been wicked, he would have caught it, and I should have caught it by the rebound. I should have found the trace. I found nothing at all, and he was therefore an angel. He never spoke of his school, never mentioned a comrade or a master, and I, for my part, was quite too much disgusted to allude to them. Of course, I was under the spell, and the wonderful part is that, even at that time, I perfectly knew I was. But I gave myself up to it. It was an antidote to any pain, and I had more pains than one. I was in receipt in these days of disturbing letters from home, where things were not going well, But with my children, what things in the world mattered? That was the question I used to put to my scrappy retirements. I was dazzled by their loveliness. There was a Sunday, to get on, when it rained with such force, and for so many hours, that there could be no procession to church, in consequence of which, as the day declined, I had arranged with Mrs. Gross that, should the evening show improvement, we would attend together the late service. The rain happily stopped, and I prepared for our walk, which, through the park and by the good road to the village, would be a matter of twenty minutes. Coming downstairs to meet my colleague in the hall, I remembered a pair of gloves that had required three stitches, and that had received them, with a publicity perhaps not edifying, while I sat with the children at their tea, served on Sundays by exception, in that cold, clean temple of mahogany and brass, the grown-up dining-room. The gloves had been dropped there, and I turned in to recover them. The day was grey enough, but the afternoon light still lingered, and it enabled me, on crossing the threshold, not only to recognize, on a chair near the wide window, then closed, the articles I wanted, but to become aware of a person on the other side of the window, and looking straight in.
1: One step into the room had sufficed. My vision was instantaneous. It was all there.
2: The person looking straight in was the person who had already appeared to me. He appeared thus again with, I won't say, greater distinctness, for that was impossible, but with a nearness that represented a forward stride in our intercourse and made me, as I met him, Catch my breath and turn cold. He was the same. He was the same, and seen this time as he had been seen before, from the waist up, the window. Though the dining room was on the ground floor, not going down to the terrace on which he stood. His face was close to the glass, yet the effect of this better view was strangely,
1: only to show me how intense the former had been. He remained but a few seconds, long enough to
2: convince me he also saw and recognized. But it was as if I had been looking at him for years, and had known him always. Something, however, happened this time that had not happened before.
1: His stare into my face, through the glass and across the room, was as deep and hard as then. But it quitted me for a moment, during which I could still watch it,
2: see it fix successively several other things. On the spot there came to me the added shock of a certitude that it was not for me he had come there. He had come for someone else. The flash of this knowledge, for it was knowledge in the midst of dread, produced in me the most extraordinary effect. Started as I stood there, A sudden vibration of duty and courage. I say courage because I was beyond all doubt already far gone. I bounded straight out of the door again, reached that of the house, got, in an instant, upon the drive, and, passing along the terrace as fast as I could rush, turned a corner and came full in sight. But it was in sight of nothing now.
1: My visitor had vanished. I stopped. I almost dropped, with the real relief of this,
2: but I took in the whole scene. I gave him time to reappear. I call it time, but how long was it? I can't speak to the purpose today of the duration of these things. That kind of measure
1: must have left me. They couldn't have lasted as they actually appeared to me to last. The terrace and the whole place
2: the lawn and the garden beyond it, all I could see of the park, were empty with a great emptiness. There were shrubberies and big trees. But I remember the clear assurance I felt that none of them concealed him. He was there or was not there, not there if I didn't see him. I got hold of this. Then, instinctively, instead of returning as I had come, went to the window, it was confusedly present to me that I ought to place myself where he had stood. I did so. I applied my face to the pane and looked, as he had looked, into the room, as if, at this moment, to show me exactly what his range had been. Mrs. Gross, as I had done for himself just before, came in from the hall. With this I had the full image of a repetition of what had already occurred. She saw me as I had seen my own visitant. She pulled up short as I had done. I gave her something of the shock that I had received. She turned white, and this made me ask myself if I had blanched as much. She stared in short, and retreated on just my lines, and I knew she had then passed out, and come round to me, and that I should presently meet her. I remained where I was, and while I waited, I thought of more things than one but there's only one I take space to mention. I wondered why she should be scared. End of Chapter 4 Chapter 5 Oh, she let me know as soon as soon, round the corner of the house, she loomed again into view. What in the name of goodness is the matter? She was now flushed and out of breath. I said nothing till she came quite near.
1: With me? I must have made a wonderful face. Do I show it? You're as white as a sheet. You look awful. I considered. I could meet on this, without scruple,
2: any innocence. My need to respect the bloom of Mrs. Gross's had dropped, without a rustle, from my shoulders, and if I wavered for the instant, It was not with what I kept back. I put out my hand to her and she took it. I held her hard a little, liking to feel her close to me. There was a kind of support in the shy heave of her surprise. You came for me for church, of course, but I can't go. Has anything happened? Yes. You must know now.
1: Did I look very queer? Through this window? Dreadful! Well, I said, I've been frightened. Mrs. Gross's eyes expressed
2: plainly that she had no wish to be, yet also that she knew too well her place, not to be ready to share with me any marked inconvenience. Oh, it was quite settled that she must share, Just what you saw from the dining room a minute ago was the effect of that.
1: What I saw, just before, was much worse. Her hand tightened. What was it? An extraordinary man.
2: Looking in. What extraordinary man? I haven't the least idea. Mrs. Gross gazed round
1: us in vain. Then where is he gone? I know still less. Have you seen him before? Yes, once. On the old tower, she could
2: only look at me harder. Do you mean he's a stranger? Oh, very much. Yet you didn't tell me? No, for reasons. Now that you've guessed, Mrs. Gross's round eyes encountered this charge. Ah, I haven't guessed, she said very simply. How can I, if you don't imagine? I don't, in the very least. You've
1: seen him nowhere but on the tower. And on this spot just now. Mrs. Gross looked round again. What was he doing on the tower? Only standing there and looking down at me. She thought a minute. Was he a gentleman? I found I had no need to think. No. She gazed in deeper wonder. No. Then nobody about the place? Nobody from the village? Nobody, nobody! I didn't tell you, but I made sure.
2: She breathed a vague relief. This was, oddly, so much to the good. It only went, indeed, a little way. But if he isn't
1: a gentleman... What is he? He's a horror. A horror? He's... God help me if I know what he is. Mrs.
2: Gross looked round once more. She fixed her eyes on the duskier distance. Then, pulling herself together, turned to me with abrupt inconsequence.
1: It's time we should be at church. Oh, I'm not fit for church. Won't it do you good? It won't do them. I nodded at the house. The children? I can't leave them now. You're afraid? I spoke boldly. I am
2: afraid of him. Mrs. Gross's large face showed me at this for the first time, the faraway faint glimmer of a consciousness more acute. I somehow made out in it the delayed dawn of an idea I myself had not given her. And that was as yet quite obscure to me. It comes back to me that I thought instantly of this as something I could get from her and I felt it to be connected with the desire she presently showed to know more. When was it? On the tower. About the middle of the month. At the same hour. Almost at dark, said Mrs. Gross. Oh, no, not nearly. I saw him as I see you. And how did he get in? And how did he get out? I laughed. I had no opportunity to ask him. "'This evening, you see,' I pursued. "'He has not been able to get in. "'He only peeps. "'I hope it will be confined to that.' "'She had now let go of my hand. "'She turned away a little. "'I waited an instant. "'Then I brought out. "'Go to church. Goodbye. "'I must watch.' "'Slowly she faced me again. "'Do you fear for them?' We met in another long look. Don't you? Instead of answering, she came nearer to the window and, for a minute, applied her face to the glass. You see how he could see, I meanwhile went on. She didn't move. How long was he here? Till I came out. I came to meet him. Mrs. Gross at last turned round, and there was still more in her face. I couldn't have come out. Neither could I, I laughed again. But I did come. I have my duty. So have I mine, she replied, after which she added, What is he like? I've been dying to tell you. But he's like nobody. Nobody? she echoed. He has no hat. Then seeing in her face that she already in this with a deeper dismay, found a touch of picture, I quickly added stroke to stroke.
1: He has red hair, very red, close curling and a pale face, long in shape,
2: with straight, good features and little, rather queer whiskers that are as red as his hair. His eyebrows are somehow darker. They look particularly arched, and as
1: if they might move a good deal. His eyes are sharp, strange, awfully. But I only know clearly that
2: they're rather small and very fixed. His mouth's wide and his lips are thin, and except for his little whiskers, he's quite clean-shaven. He gives me a sort of sense of looking like an actor. An actor? It was impossible to resemble one less, at least, than Mrs. Gross at that moment. I've never seen one, but so I suppose them. He's tall, active,
1: erect. I continued, but never, no, never a gentleman. My companion's
2: face had blanched as I went on. Her round eyes started, and her mild mouth gaped. "'A gentleman?' she gasped, confounded, stupefied. "'A gentleman he? You know him, then?' she visibly tried to hold herself. "'But
1: he is handsome.' "'I saw the way to help her. Remarkably. "'And dressed. In somebody's clothes. They're smart, but they're not
2: his own.' She broke into a breathless affirmative groan. They're the masters. I caught it up. You do know him. She faltered but a second. Quint, she cried. Quint? Peter Quint. His own man, his valet, when he was here. When the master was, gaping still but meeting me, she pieced it all together. He never wore his hat, but he did wear, well, there were waistcoats missed. They were both here last year.
1: Then the master went, and Quint was alone. I followed but halting a little. Alone? Alone with us. Then as from a deeper depth. In charge she added. And what became of him? She
2: hung fire so long that I was still more mystified. He went too, she brought out at last. Went where?
1: Her expression at this became extraordinary. God knows where. He died. Died? I almost shrieked. She seemed
2: fairly to square herself, planned herself more firmly to utter the wonder of it. Yes, mister Quint is dead. End of chapter five. Isn't that just awesome melodrama?
0: <laughs> he was dead. I love it. We're gonna have so much fun with this book. Um there was one other thing that I forgot to mention early on, and that is I got a really um very important email um, earlier this week about um, the size of the files. And the answer to the question, why in the world are these files so darn big, is I don't know. I've been trying to figure that out too. I keep telling GarageBand to compress the files and do all that kind of stuff. And I don't know why it's not working. So I'm still... Uh, trying to figure it out. If anybody knows or knows anything or knows anybody who knows anything about GarageBand, tell them to get in contact with me because I'm having a hard time. Uh, my email, just in case you've forgotten, is mamaonits at gmail dot com. And uh, I hope you guys have a great week. Talk to you soon. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit blogspot dot com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. And do remember, if
1: your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.